Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Today, I am super lucky to be speaking with Kimberly Huggins and Brittany Brathwaite, co-founders and co-CEOs of Kimberative, an organization that offers real, empowering conversations and sexual wellness workshops for black women and girls. Kimberly is a sexual wellness educator and social worker who is passionate about reproductive health and the emotional well-being for people living with HIV and other stigmatized health conditions. Brittany is a reproductive justice activist, youth worker, and community accountable scholar with a deep commitment to supporting the leadership, organizing, and healing of girls of color. Get ready for Kimberative. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Isle. Isle is a collection of high-performance, reusable period care products centered on body positivity, ethical business, and sustainability. Isle, previously known as Lunapads, has an entire line of reusable pads, cups, and period underwear that's made from sustainable, technical, and safe absorbent materials. Find out more at www.periodisle.com and use promo code SEXEDDB to get 20% off your first purchase. Follow them on Instagram, at period aisle. Clonawilly and Clonapussy kits allow you to make the most personalized sex toys on the planet. Clonawilly is the original DIY dildo kit, and Clonapussy is the original DIY pocket pussy. They're fun to make, sex positive, and completely body safe. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase at www.clonawilly.com. Follow them on IG, at Kit. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Sweet Vibrations. Based in sunny San Diego, Sweet Vibrations is an adult boutique that delivers innovative lifestyle products and embraces the taboo of sexual wellness instead of hiding it. They have five incredible buzzing beauties that won't break the bank. Check them out at www.sweetvibe.toys and use promo code SEXWITHDB to get 15% off your first purchase. Follow them on Instagram, at Sweet Vibrations. Hello, good morning, Kim and Brittany. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, hey. Hey. Hi. (laughs) Oh my gosh, so excited. Love it, love it, love it. Um, Thank you both so much for being here. I'm so excited to hear about your your story and your lives and Kimberative um, as I met you both what what has been like a year and a half ago or something mm-hmm. I like that yeah at Mailman and I just like fell in love with everything that you're doing and your facilitation and your content and um, I'm so incredibly impressed so I can't wait to learn more um, let's get started by you telling us your names um, pronouns, your titles, um, and what Kimberative is. And maybe we can start in the same order every time. Maybe, um, Kim, you can go first and then Brittany, you can go. Okay, cool. Um, I'm Kim. My full name is Kimberly, but people call me Kim. I'm one of the co-founders of Kimberative and I go by her, she pronouns. Perfect. Yeah. 
Um, I'm Brittany Brathwaite. I use the pronouns Hershey, like the chocolate bar, and I'm also a co-founder of Kimberdiff. Amazing. Ooh. And um, can one of you define Kimberdiff? Tell us what it is, what you all do, um, how long you've been around, who you are uh, targeting. Sure. Um, so if you hadn't, told, if you can't tell by now, Kimberdiff is like Brittany and I's name together. Um, <laughs> Um, with, with an IVE at the end because we look at ourselves as a collaborative, we're supportive, um, we're innovative, creative in our approaches to sexual wellness. So that's sort of like how we came up with the name Kimberative is kind of putting our names together. Um, but we're a black woman owned and led sexual wellness brand um, that provides sex education and training that normalizes centers and ultimately celebrates black women and girls. And we work with three specific groups, meaning that we work with youth. So that's anywhere from middle age, um, middle school age um, young people up until high school um, around age. And you also work with women. So thinking about college age women, your everyday women. And you also work with professionals that work with you. So we make sure that we are sort of honing in on all the different groups that um, we, we identify sort of really need sexual wellness education and training to um, provide better services for young people or to just um, center an important part of your wellness that is often left out. Incredible. Um, Brittany, anything to add? No, I think that's it. That was a great <laughs> definition. I wouldn't say anything else either. That was awesome. Um, incredible. So let's get into what are y'all's backgrounds um, and how did you kind of get on the path to creating Kimberative? Um, if you each had kind of an aha moment that you were like, wow, this is going to be my path now. Um, I want to hear about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, Brittany and I, we've met, we met in college um, and we sort of were leaders in a student organization on campus that did sort of sex education work for our college campus and ultimately the greater um, local community. So Brittany and I have been in partnership together for over 10 years now. It's funny enough to think about it, but um, we you always were celebrate interested. once this yeah. is all over. <laughs> I know. If we could ever go back outside. But, <laughs> um, we've been doing this work for a long time. And um, Brittany was a woman in gender studies major. I was a psych major. But we sort of used those two worlds, I guess, as young people. <laughs> I would say I called myself at the time to, th to do fun and innovative approaches to sexual education for our college campus. And then... Um, um, we graduated. Brittany went. Brittany went on to study social work and public health, and so did I. So we both have like that similar background of being public health professionals and social workers. So uh, that was sort of like our background professionally that kind of led to the, led to this sort of work. But when you say backgrounds, what do you mean? Yeah, just like if you maybe growing up like had a particular like moment in sex education or, you know, if you were influenced by certain things. Um, but yeah, definitely professional backgrounds is part of it. But if there are any other kinds of stories where you were like, wow, I feel like just socially or culturally or kind of just like anything to do with you growing up the way that you kind of like saw things and how you were influenced to creating Kimberdiv in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, I mean, we both have like stories that led us to our work. I think what, um, what a lot of people don't know about Kimberdiv or our focus of, and not just Kimberdiv, the, the group or the company, but Kimberdiv as Kim and Brittany, um, we've often, uh, our work has evolved in so many ways. And I think for both Kim and I, our work originally was seated in understanding, um, 
in understanding disparities around HIV and AIDS, um, in particular, the impact that it had on Black folks and Black communities. And for me, I, I was a young person who did not have any form of comprehensive sex edu- sexuality education. I, would like, I like to say that I'm a sex educator who never, ever, even into my adult life, had any formal um, sex education that wasn't about me teaching it to someone else. Uh, and so I, you know, was, I was a sexually active teen, like most teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a sexually active teenager and I never, I, no one ever talked to me about what sex was really, even though I was having sex or, um, how to prevent STIs or any of that. And I, um, the story I tell is that I was, um, coming home from school one day and there was an S. Uh, there was an HIV testing unit truck, um, that like a van that was giving out HIV tests on the corner of my block, and they were offering free Metro cards. Um, and they were it was like a weekly or monthly unlimited. I know that it was worth a lot. Wow, that yeah, <laughs> monthly unlimited is nothing to joke about. Right, right. <laughs> so anywhere that I wanted to. Um, if I got this and that's all I heard, all I heard was we're giving out Metro cards and I was like, okay, what do I have to do? Um, and they were like, oh, you just need to take an HIV test. And I was like, I'm come again. And (laughs) they're like, no. And then I had my first sort of HIV, um, an AIDS counseling session in that, you know, minivan on the corner of my block. And I was, you know, I left that, I left that, that, that truck that day angry um, that no one had ever, you know, sat down with me and talked to me about HIV and like, just at all, like nothing, like never Mm -hmm. had mentioned anything about it. Like I, you know, I had heard like whispers, you know, growing up in the nineties, it was like the cancer or, um, completely secretive and nothing, I knew nothing about it. And so I was really angry that like, you know, I was out here having sex, even though the, you know, the conversation was like, don't have sex, but no one really said, okay, here's what you do to, you know, protect yourself and here's why. And so, you know, when I left that, um, when I left that HIV and AIDS testing unit, I was like, oh, everything is going to be different. Um, I'm going to try to be a contribution to teaching my peers about what HIV is, because this is not, this is not okay. And when Kim and I entered college, um, um, back in like 2008, 2009, uh, HIV and AIDS was one of the leading causes of death for black women in the United States. Mm. And again, the silence around that, um, the silence around how this was impacting our community was just that it was silence. Yeah. Um, and I guess to to echo to the silence for me personally, I, in college, I lost a relative to HIV related complications Mm. and, from a personal standpoint, um, that was the first person that I've I've known to um, be living with HIV. But his his passing, at least, was very traumatic for me because he died never having told us what was going on with him. We sort of had to sort of find out at the very end, mm-hmm. and I it was really painful to just observe that someone was going through something that was like really changing their life dramatically, and he didn't feel comfortable talking to anybody about it to support him or get him the help that he needed. And that was like something that was just really devastating for me. And also just noticing like how people were in my family and and our like close knit community were responding to what he died from. Whereas, you know, if you die from cancer, you die from, 
you know, something else. Like people are, people cry, people are sad. People are like, oh, that damn cancer did that to this person. Mm -hmm. Whereas when it's something like HIV or something, you know, else that people say or have this, this stigma about, it's a different type of experience. So that really just opened my eyes to why do people cry about cancer, but don't have the same sort of energy when it comes to things like HIV? Like, what is this, what is it about HIV? So I just really like, um, dedicated myself to kind of figure this out because that was honestly the first time I learned a lot about HIV was through leaving my um my uncle's passing so again speaking like to what Brittany was saying like no one talked about it (laughs) no one talked about it we just knew that it was something that people wanted to hush hush about it or have feelings about that weren't positive or or weren't what you expect to be at someone's funeral Mm -hmm. so that was like a deeply personal thing for me so I wanted to make sure that like, so like, similarly, people wanted to know about what was going on and also wanted to make sure people living with HIV didn't have to suffer in silence ever, mm-hmm. like, again. Because mm-hmm. that's not something that you should have to do with anything you're going through. You should always have to talk to someone or be able to talk to someone about it. And I want to make sure that people had access to that because that's a big thing is, like, support. Mm. Um, so that's what brought me to the work, too. Totally. And I'm so sorry about your uncle. Um, and I appreciate sh- you sharing that. Um, and yeah, that is so real for so many people in so many communities because of the stigma, because of the shame, um, there's not really a medium or a forum for folks to be able to, uh, gain support or medical supplies or whatever it is that they need. Um, so that is super real. Really want to like underline that. Um, so can we talk a little bit about, um, Brittany, you kind of shared a little bit about how, like at that time, HIV was disproportionately affecting black women. Um, And I want to know what are some other kinds of sexual and reproductive health issues um, maybe today in 2020 that particularly um, disproportionately affect black women? Yeah. So Kim and I was talking about this and what's unfortunately not interesting is that any sexual and reproductive health issue disproportionately impacts black women. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, you know, so anything that we're thinking about, whether it's um, uh, STDs or STIs, um, if it's reproductive um, health issues, you know, whether it's ovarian cancer or fibroids, there are there's always a disproportionate um, impact on black women. If we think about cervical cancer, black women and Latinx women are more likely to have more severe cases of cervical cancer. Um, less likely to be treated, less likely to be tested early. Every single reproductive health issue that is out there, um, Black women have a disproportionate impact, and it all is connected. Uh, it has a disproportionate impact on Black women, and it is severely connected to um, systems and institutions that shape the policies that impact Black women's lives, right? And so part of being a, even though we're really concerned with the sexual and reproductive health education point, right, like teaching about this, we know that our work alone isn't enough to just shift the culture of how Black women are treated in the medical industrial, you know, complex, right? And the history around that, um, that contributes to these, to this disproportionate outcomes. You know, there's nothing for the most part that's biological about Black women's bodies that put them at more risk um, or create more exposure to, you know, illnesses or ailments connected to sexual reproductive health. It is the treatment, the access, um, the treatment, both actual medical treatment and the treatment of you in a medical institution that contributes largely to the disparity, right? Um, And so, 
we, you know, we talk about everything and every day we're finding, you know, something new to think about or how we, you know, how black women deal with endo or how black women deal with ovarian cancer or how black women deal with fibroids. The, the scope actually of all the reproductive health issues or sexual health issues is so large, Mm -hmm. um, that we find ourselves, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming because it's, it's unfortunate that this, uh, this is the experience, um, and the outcomes. And even when we think about, you know, access to abortion or, um, any, you know, any, any reproductive health issue seems to fall, um, very, um, sorry. It, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's so much. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're, we only get sort of media attention at one point in time around one issue. Right. So let's say right. in the two thousands, it was like, you know, HIV is disproportionately impacting heterosexual black women. Okay. That's, that's still the case. And we have to move on to another thing. So now we're going to like focus with the work of so many um, writer, black women writers and journalists, um, many of them that I know, um, Elizabeth Dawes Gay and like activists who brought the maternal, the black maternal mortality um, issues to the forefront. It's like, okay, so we're going to just talk about this now. Mm -hmm. But there's so many issues that are connected uh, among this. And I feel like we're always having to fight for our one conversation talking point about a disparity, even though they're so wide uh, and they exist um, multiple layers impacting people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was like, I don't have anything more to add, honestly. Like, you know, in, in summary, like everything that you could imagine, unfortunately, when it comes to health related issues, we are impacted the most because our experience in this country has so many different layers mm-hmm. as Black and it's your, you know, thinking about racism, thinking about um, misogynoir, all these different things that does not allow us to be prioritized in major um, health-related things. It's it's, it's it's frustrating. It's mm-hmm. frustrating. And it's scary because it has real consequences. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was a fantastic explanation. Um, I would love for you both to kind of back up a little because the capacity that I've kind of seen your work is in like reproductive justice 101 workshops. Um, Mm -hmm. And you two do just like such a fucking phenomenal job. Like, thank you. (laughs) Like really, really breaking down and explaining reproductive health. Um, and justice in like a really tangible, relevant way. Um, so I was wondering if maybe you could give like, you know, a mini lesson. I, I understand that there's so much to it and you probably, you can't fit in everything you want to, even in your, you know, hour, hour and a half long workshops. Um, but I wonder if just there's a mini lesson available of what reproductive justice is and where it originated. Yeah. Totally always excited to do that. Um, and so sort of the history of reproductive justice, and, and thank you so much um, for for allowing us to like talk about this, of because course. I think that we are also in a moment um, where people use reproductive justice and rights and health interchangeably, right. and it dilutes uh, the work that so many um, women of color, indigenous women, trans folks have put into creating a narrative around what reproductive justice is and why it must be achieved for those groups. Uh, and so it's always, I feel I feel grateful every time I have the opportunity to um, voice the origins of sort of that story. And so um, reproductive justice has been um, people of color, indigenous folks, trans people have been fighting for reproductive justice 
for a very long time. Um, the term itself was coined in 1994, and so right before there was a there was a international conference on population development. Cairo, uh, there were lots of folks gathering, and the focus on that conference was to talk about the individual right to plan your own family, right, and and in the purpose of maintaining global development. And so the whole world agreed that women, at that point they were talking about cis women, had this individual right to maintain their family, right? And right before then, a group of Black women gathered in the city of Chicago in um, June of 1994, and they wanted to have an, another meeting because much like the women's rights movement, um, they saw this uh, reproductive movement centering the lives of middle class and wealthy white women. Mm-hmm. And um, they did not feel that that same representation, um, those people were coming to the table to defend the needs of women of color and other marginalized groups, right? And so we needed, um, I'm including myself, even though I was four years old, we needed... <laughs> We needed a movement that, um, our own national movement that would, you know, position uh, marginalized folks, families, and communities at the center of these conversations, and that those that that conversation needed to be bigger than the right to maintain um, abortion, while included in that conversation, um, needed to be bigger, right? And so. <clears throat> the 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 sort of definition that I use or sort of lean on for simplicity purposes is one created by Sister Song, a reproductive justice organization uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, that says that reproductive justice is the human right to have children, not have children, and parent our children in a safe and sustainable community, right? Mm. And so that's uh, the umbrella of reproductive justice can look like your right to access um, birth control or your right to access an abortion. And it can also look like, um, the, your right to not, um, be, um, terrorized by police in your community or your home or fear your child that you have birthed walking out the door or not birthed, walking out the door and being, um, being harassed or killed by police. Right. And so, mm-hmm. The, the umbrella of reproductive justice is that it's not just enough to talk about, you know, birthing a child or right to an abortion, but we actually have to include the entire aspect of what it means to be a human on this planet in this time, right? And so the so when we think about reproductive justice, we must remember that it is a human right. It is not a right to be legislated, right? Because you shouldn't have to legislate rights. Right. Bro, <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're constantly thinking about fighting for legislation that tells us we have autonomy over our bodies. Mm. Reproductive justice doesn't believe that it's about legislation. It's a human right that we have it because we are here um, and that we are species identifying as human, right? Um, and it's not a focus on an individual set of rights and responsibilities. A lot of um, the, the idea of rhetoric around abortion is I myself have the individual right to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. Reproductive justice does not believe because, you know, that individual right can be taken away. And that even when people maintain the individual right, that if we think about um, this country, we, you know, we can have Roe, the, the right to have an abortion, and also have the Hyde Amendment that blocks so many low-income folks, women, trans folks from accessing an abortion. Mm-hmm. So the individual right is not reaching far enough, right? Right. And that reproductive justice is about access, is not about choice. Because you can have all the choices you want. If you cannot get to a clinic or a doctor, it does not matter. You cannot have, you can, there is no choice without access. Mm-hmm. The, uh, 
ability of not having to be able to make a choice about anything is just removed, right? So whether or not you could be like, oh, yes, I have the individual right to an abortion. If there's no abortion clinic for you, there is no, <laughs> there's no choice in that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and, you know, to, and the final point, you know, is that it's so much bigger than abortion. Um, we must always center how folks access contraception, comprehensive sex ed, um, alternative birth options, knowing that the birthing system in this country, the hospitalized system is so traumatic and violent to black women, um, adequate um, um, pregnancy care, right? Thinking about um, healthy relationships and domestic violence relief, again, policing, prison abolition. It's so much bigger than um, the individual right to abortion, even though abortion is an essential um, factor that impacts lots of women of color differently than it does white women um, and cis white women, especially cis white women. And that that we have to think about all the other things that are connected to sort of our ability to have autonomous lives. Mm. And that is it. Yes. <laughs> all the yes. <laughs> yeah. Kim, any, any add-ons, any comments? I mean, I was just more so going to say, like, just thinking about how we're all experiencing COVID right now. Yes, Everyone, please. <laughs> yeah, like, so, you know, there are certain people who are able to hoard resources, like right. the toilet tissue that we we're talking about this morning. But yeah. there's some people that are able to, you know, when they heard about this pandemic happened, they were able to stock up on things for their family. They were able to um, speak to their employer and have an adjusted work schedule. They were able to tap into maybe um, pay time off or they were able to have um, childcare for their children while they're trying to figure this out. And there are a lot of people, especially women of color and trans folks and queer folks who don't have that choice at all. Mm-hmm. So how are you able to take care of yourself during an emergency? Like I can't plan for a pandemic. Like, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so by default, because I'm not someone that is salary, like, salaried employee, for example, if I'm not someone that is, has emergency savings, I'm struggling right now. Or if I'm someone who doesn't have the supports to help me to take care of my family right now, what do I do? What do I do? And this is what we, this is why we want to think more broadly about what reproductive justice is, because it's more than like Brittany said, more than just abortion. It's about how can you take care of your family, period, in a safe and affirming and a healthy way, if you don't have access to your basic necessities right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, Absolutely. Um, wow, wow, wow. There's so much to think about, so much to talk about. Um, can you briefly discuss a little bit about, um, how we got to where we are in this country with contraceptives and how it is built on the abuse and coercion and sterilization of women of color? Oh, (laughs) we could go on and on about that. (laughs) But I, you know, I think most people are sort of familiar when you think about like, this is not necessarily about contraceptives, but I think most people are familiar with things like the Tuskegee experiment, right? Mm -hmm. Um, As an example of experimentation on black bodies in terms of us figuring out everything we know about syphilis. But we often forget that what we know about birth control and its efficacy and how (laughs) the dosage is because you were experimenting on native and Puerto Rican women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wouldn't. We knew that we saw that it was devastating their bodies based on the high dosages that the doctors were fig- trying to figure out at the time. It was really harming those babies, um, those excuse me, those women. So that's all we know about birth control. When it comes down to you know your basic uh, pap smear, <laughs> that even the, the speculum that is used, we know that. 
that was something that was designed by J. Marion Fuckboy Sims. And he's the one, <laughs> you know, he experimented on teenage black girls. That's mm-hmm. how he was able to, you know, create his whole entire knowledge base, his whole entire fame and, and notoriety as a physician. If you want to call him that, a physician, mm-hmm. I would call him like something else. But trash. That's, yeah, trash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All that we know about our, you know, by our body, sexual, sexual wellness, reproductive justice, it's all because of black and brown people. So that's like the frustrating part. Like all, everything that we know, all these wonderful things that exist now, it has a very negative and dark history because it comes from us harming certain groups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think when we talk to people about, you know, birth control and and again, I, you know, sex ed is a really like broad field and there's some ex- sex educators that never touch reproductive health at all. Um, and, you know, and if they do, it's like, you know, what is the pill? What is the patch? But when we think about contraceptive education, we have to be very careful that we're also not continuing sort of a system that has placed, um, has talked to, con- has talked about contraceptives to women of color as yeah. a means of, uh, sterilization or a means of controlling their reproductive, um, their, re- their reproductive lives. Right. And so, you know, even if the workshop, we can't do a contraceptive workshop in an hour because we need time to discuss how your family has talked about the use of birth control. We need time to discuss why you, you know, when it didn't work, why you gave up on it or what you've heard about this. And, you know, there's lots of public health research around sort of attitudes about birth control, but they don't always make it into the actual workshop that people are teaching about. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people default to the most effective methods, which I think um, is, you know, violent because sometimes the most effective method is an IUD Um, and if you get an IUD put in and you lose health insurance and you need to get it taken out, who's taking it out? Mm -hmm. You can't just roll up. It's not a tampon. You can't just roll up in your bathroom and just, you know, pull on the little two strings and, and, you know, IUD. Um, and so there's like a, there's an additional need to be careful and be intentional, um, in your impact of when you're talking about even contraception, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you, in not just being like, here's the scale, here's what works. And we also know like what works for one person doesn't work for everyone. And the fact that, uh, you know, women of color's bodies were used to be the original test sites. Mm-hmm. Um, you must pay, um, you must pay, you must acknowledge that experience when you're, when you're talking about that. And so we try to create room in order to have that conversation knowing that deep down inside like the things that we learn about birth control also are at least in communities of color are very much connected to that um, history of oppression and and abuse for all those years Mm -hmm. totally Mm -hmm. yeah thank you so much for going through that um I would love to learn a little bit more about your workshops for like younger black women um like black girls Um, and would just love to know, like, how is your content? So you've been, uh, you know, a pair, you know, maybe not Kimberative as a pair, but you've been a pair for 10 years. So you guys have been working (laughs) together for a long time. You've seen the space, you know, what's out there. You've done your research about what other kinds of sex ed exists. Um, and I would love to know how your content kind of differs from other sex ed content out there. Um, and, uh, kind of what you've learned on your on your journey thus far. Yeah. Yeah. I think the version of me that started as a sex educator fresh out of college, like I had to, you know, follow a prescribed sort of curriculum that talked about, 
you know, they see the goal of all the workshops were to prevent pregnancy and to prevent STIs. Like that was the goal of every mm-hmm. single workshop. <laughs> and if you think about it, like you're not really open to having a conversation with a young person who um, is thinking about maybe having a baby. You're not open to having a conversation with a young person who might have an STI if that's the framework that you come into the workshop with. Mm-hmm. And that is unfortunately, you know, sometimes where a lot of sexual health curricula for young people is focused on is, is making sure they don't make these detrimental um, quote unquote, like decisions that mm-hmm. will lead to this horrible thing. What Brittany and I make sure we do is we remember, I remember the 14 and 15 year old version of myself every time I do a workshop in front of <laughs> teenagers or young people now, because I know what I was doing when I was young. So, and I would have loved to have somebody that was in front of me having a conversation with me and not talking at me and trying to um, force me to make decisions that maybe I'm not even comfortable with mm-hmm. or doesn't feel right for me or doesn't feel affirming for me. So we try to approach it from that standpoint of, you know, we were once the, we were once young people that needed the support that we're trying to give. So let's do it in a way that's affirming and speaks to what this person is going through. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I think that... Um, yeah, we don't have, like Kim said, we don't have a prescribed curriculum, so we don't follow any of the, like, evidence-based, this has been proven to work on every black young person in America. Right. Um, <laughs> and it hasn't it hasn't been proven because black young people are not a monolith and, you know, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Um, but I would say, like, you know, we, we differ in, I think, in like, in my experience, like, there are, like, three things that we do that sort of... Um, are are different from what I've seen or when I sit in on other people's sort of um, workshops or experiences that look very different. Um, one is that we center joy and celebration. And so mm. we, we, you know, we play music in our workshops. We create things in our workshops. We allow space for, um, in particular, Black girls to be themselves. Mm-hmm. We don't attempt to stop the twerking if it's already begun. Like, we're not doing any of that um, because you can't have a conversation about sexual liberation and police police people's bodies in the same hour, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you know, and I feel like that's the contradiction that often happens. People are like, we're going to come in and talk about sex education, but please stop doing that thing, you know? So right. you know, we don't do any of that, right? And we, um, and unlike the, like, you know, beginning of this conversation when we talked about sort of the detrimental, the bad things that happen, we actually don't even present that to young people. So when I was learning about sex education, there were whole statistics and slides about the disproportionate impact. Oh my God, and pictures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on black it's like black youth are x percent more likely to have like we don't present any of that information Mm -hmm. because it is not going to change the outcome right we like are only going to prevent we're only going to present what is what you need to know in order to lead a sexually healthy life and your best sexually healthy life and you know and kim and i move from this place that young people have sex which i want to say that for the most part i think a whole entire field attempts to uh, ignore you know, mm-hmm. like the, that even people that are like, you know, talking about sexuality, education, what are uncomfortable with young people sharing openly in a public platform in school or whatever, that they're actually having sex, right? That they're that they're doing it. Right. And which um, they are. Could, they're doing it. Exactly. We know this statistically and everything. But where do we create space for young people to name that? Like, I'm doing it, right? Like, and it looks like this. And so much of sex education isn't actually ever talking about sex. So, like, you can flip through 100 curriculums right. <laughs> and they won't explain to you what anal sex is. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you about lube, but not really why we use it, that it makes the slide and glide easier, right? They're mm-hmm. like, oh, it prevents tears. That shit ain't sexy. <laughs> who, 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 like, why would you start with lube talking about it's not 
tear you, you know, like because of this avoidance of actually talking about sex, which is what young people are engaging in. Like, right. so <laughs> we present this with joy and celebration and the truth about sex education has to talk about sex. It just can't talk about preventing all of these things or, you know, stopping or halting um, sort of y- your use of your bodies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another thing is we talk about race. Like we mm-hmm. talk about or bring up race um, in how it looks. We've been asked to do uh, self-esteem workshops for girls because of our focus on girls. And we pretty much tell them like, you know, self-esteem, not a real thing. Um, <laughs> we don't, not to say that it's not a real thing, but you know, I've never heard any of the men or boys in my life say that they were invited to a self-esteem workshop mm. for men boys. Um, and so it is, it's, it, it's a clear sexist frame about what women need to do in order to show up in society and how that needs to look. Mm. Um, and, it, and it's absent from sort of the social, cultural, and historical things that shape how we feel about ourselves, right? And so the the conversation that we present is on body liberation. And so you don't, we're not going to talk to the young girl who is uncomfortable with her size because she's going through puberty. We're going to talk about fat phobia and the fact that it's a constructed thing that has nothing to do with you. It's how other people feel about people in fat bodies, right? And the privilege of thin folks. And they don't expect that because, you know, fat phobia is not written into your everyday sex ed curriculum, but right. it's ours. Because if we're really going to talk about bodies, we're going to talk about bodies, right? Right. Um, and so that is like a, you know, a key component that we're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about fat phobia. We're going to talk about sexism and how it shows up in our life and how it shapes us. And like, while we don't set to set out to do like any political consciousness raising, it is everything about our bodies is political. So we can't not have a curriculum that has that. Um, and then we share our own stories. Kim alluded to the fact that, you know, we think about ourselves as 14 and 15 year olds. We put ourselves in our, we take the biggest risk and we put ourselves in the curriculum. Like you will read a Kimberly curriculum and some of those scenarios are definitely Kim and I. <laughs> oh. Right. <laughs> you're going to, but the thing like, is, that was so helpful though. Like, sorry right. to cut you off, B, but like we did a workshop one time. We we're talking about healthy relationships and it was a scenario that we presented where a young person was, um, not able to negotiate using condoms in a relationship with their partner. And the girls in the classroom were, you know, saying things like, how could that person not be able to say that or ask for it? And I just was like, it was me. <laughs> you know, I was a young person and I just did not feel comfortable talking to my boyfriend at the time about using condoms because um, I didn't want to feel like I didn't trust him. Right. I didn't want to have to deal with the consequences of trying to put a barrier in between a partner. Like that was something that was real for me and real for a lot of people, but you, you may not conceptualize it because you don't know anybody that's going through it. Or people don't talk about those things. So we try to bring those reality. Those will remember jobs. that. I yeah. promise. They really <laughs> I, will. I hope they do. But that's what we try to do is just to sort of center like the personal in our workshops, because who's going to talk to young people about these real things that do happen. Mm-hmm. We, we kind of, you know, put these things to the side and kind of hush hush or talk about it in silos. And we want to make your sure people know, like, these are things that happen and this is how to best prepare yourself for it. Mm-hmm. And what you need to do in the event that something is happening where you're not comfortable, where you don't feel safe. Right. This is what you need to do. This is who you need to talk to. So we want to just make sure people feel young people feel prepared to make decisions about their their bodies and their identities and their sexual wellness, because it starts at a young age. It should start at a young age. Mm-hmm. Totally. Oh, my God. This has been such a fantastic interview. I have a couple questions left. Um, I would love to know what's on the horizon for you all. Where are you headed? What are your dreams? How can I contribute to making you 
rich and well known <laughs> across the world. Um, I want to know like what what you all are doing next and kind of what are your goals for the next like couple of years. Oh yes! Oh my God! Okay. <laughs> well, once once Corona goes away uh-huh. <laughs> and we're able to like meet with people face to face safely, we are um, excited to roll out trainings for adults that work with young people. Um, this is because we we've always been excited to sort of offer a space for youth serving professionals to be able to build their capacity to have conversations with young people about sexual wellness, just because we know that the average person that's teaching sex ed, if it's available at a school or uh, after school programming or something, some programming for youth, it's not someone that's necessarily trained in sex education. So we want to be able to build their capacity to do that because mostly young people will have to identify a person in their life that they feel comfortable with. And we want to make sure that all adults feel comfortable to provide that space um, for a young person. So we're going to roll that out once Corona leaves Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, in the summertime. And we also hoping to take another part of our Kimberly brand. We have a campaign called black women deserve great sex. Mm. And we're, we're hoping to um, launch some a tour this summer, which we're sort of going through different cities in the um, Northeast, I would say the tri-state area right now, in which we sort of create these fun and engaging and informative conversations for um, Black women to come together, be celebratory, and just talk about our sexual wellness and get our answers, our questions answered from each other, because we believe that, you know, you have the answers within you, you just need that extra support to sort of um, make it more personalized for you. So we're hoping to sort of um, launch that out in the summer too. So more face-to-face interaction <laughs> with people. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Um, that's wonderful. I can't wait to post about you and support you in any way that I can and just let everyone know that they would absolutely benefit from going to your workshops and seeing you all talk in person. Um, you both are extremely brilliant and magnetic and just wonderful speakers and educators. So I've been lucky <laughs> enough to see that twice now. So very, very <laughs> excited you. for everyone else. Um, and I guess to close, I have one last question, um, which is, why, um, in, you know, a few lines, I guess, if you can, I know it's challenging, but why is accessible sex education for black girls and, um, young people of color so incredibly important? Mm. (laughs) A few words. Okay. I'll try. (laughs) I think, I mean, I don't, I think that if the world already creates so many narratives about our bodies in our lives and the consequences um, that come out after, you know, after unprotected sex or after an unintended pregnancy or all these, all these things that have quotations around, but you can't see them because we're on a podcast. Um, All the consequences from those things are, um, they're weighted differently in the lives of, you know, black women and girls. And so we know that every single person deserves to have information about their bodies in order to make self-determined decisions about their lives. And we know that because the consequences of what occurs out in the world um, is, is present, that black women and girls actually deserve to know even more. Right. And that it's, it's, it's about deserving. It's not even about needing, right. It's not about, um, it's not about, yeah, it's not about need. It's about deserving. It's about you actually get to have this. And so for us, 
I think we continue to come back to it all the time. We get asked, like, why center black women and girls? If not us, then who? Mm. You know? <laughs> if not us, then who? Right? Like, and, and a lot of the work is to consistently be on brand, like, not just be on brand, but keep keeping up with the lives of black women, right? Because black women create the culture. There's no, you know, doubt about that. And that that culture needs to continue to include their bodies and their sex lives. And so we're always attempting to push the envelope in a world that doesn't think that black women deserve great sex, in a world that can talk about black women's um, reproductive and maternal health disparities, but can't talk about, you know, their sex. When we, and I know this is supposed to be short, but the, when we created the shirt, you know, one of our friends wore the shirt and it was taken down by Instagram. It literally just says black women deserve great sex. And, you know, I, that's the world that we live in, that you can't actually talk about sort of the, the deserving or the celebration or mm. the pleasure aspect of black women's sex lives. But there's room or space to talk about sort of the disparities in the debt, oh, right? Yep. This, this damage-centered work. Um, and so we, if not us, then who, right? We're going to continue to create and push the envelope to create that space and I don't care how many times Kimberly has to transform to do that that's what we're setting out to do mm. yeah. so incredible Kim anything to add <laughs> I'll try, try to be sure I'm <laughs> terrible at being short let me just say that <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think you know the main thing for me is like I just remember what it was like to read statistics about sexual health and always see that black women will be impacted the most or black people mm -hmm. will be impacted the most. Like that just did, started to just wear and tear on my psyche. It didn't make me feel like I was a sexy person. It didn't make me feel like I was a beautiful person or somebody deserving of love mm -hmm. uh, because of the way I was consistently reading all these negative things about my sexuality, my personhood, my body. So um, we just really tried to flip that on, on its head and make sure that we yeah, putting out messages that are like affirming and celebratory because that's what we need in order to be able to access information and take it in instead of being afraid of it or want to shy away from it because it's always framed as something that's negative designed to harm us. So we want to be able to sort of do something different and make sure people have access to information that they feel affirmed, they see themselves in, they can smile when they read it, they can chuckle instead of be afraid and don't want to engage with it. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. This has been such a phenomenal interview. Um, thank you both so, so much for being on. Um, if you all just want to share where listeners can find you, maybe some like your social, your website, um, anything that you want to kind of get out there into the world where people can follow you beyond this interview. Yeah. Um, follow us on Instagram at Kimbritive. That's K-I-M-B-R-I-T-E-V-E. Um, on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. We're also on Twitter. And we also have a website, which we want all of you to see and join and join our newsletter. It's a, that's also at Kimberdiv.com. Amazing. Thank you both so, so much for being on the podcast. It was so wonderful to have you. Thank, Thank you. you. How do you like our new podcast logo and banner? Andrea Forgotch is the queer, fat, feminist artist behind this incredible artwork. We're absolutely loving the abstract, sexual goodness that she brings in all of her beautiful illustrations. So, whenever you need some art that is unapologetically there for you, go visit andreaforgotch.com. That's Andrea, F-O-R-G-A-C-S dot com to commission your own piece, or download one of her illustrations in the shop. Follow her on Instagram at Andrea Forgotch. 
Creating a homemade dildo or a usable copy of your own penis is rapidly turning into the new standard in ultra-custom sex toys, thanks to Clonawilly. Clonawilly has been all about dick since 96 and brings you a DIY penis or vulva molding kit for your favorite sex toy or memento. Whether it be for a birthday, Hanukkah, or just because, Clonawilly is the perfect gift. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase at www.clonawilly.com. Ever wish your period products were more eco-friendly? Tired of buying a $10 box of tampons every single month? Meet the OGs of sustainable menstruation, Isle. In business since 1993, their collection of smart reusables is easy on the planet and good for your body. Check out their amazing undies, reusable pads, and cups at www.periodisle.com and use promo code SEXEDDB to get 20% off your first purchase. Follow them on IG at Periodile. Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time.